Well, hello, Edgewater Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Tyler Biggs. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, I'm a member at the church, and uh, I've been attending for a little around a year now. Um, you might know my fiance a little better than me. Her name's Gabby. And um, if you're wondering why I'm actually not here at the church, I am in St. Louis with her family. We decided to uh, move around over to here to avoid being sheltered in place by ourselves. So it's been really good to be with family. Um, in this time and we're just really grateful to be around one another and to not be alone in our isolation. Um, well, without any further ado, um, we just want to move right into the sermon. So if you've been with us for the last few months, you'll know that we've been in a series on the Minor Prophets. Um, and each week we've been either covering uh, Micah verse by verse, or we have been going through a quick summary of one of the books uh, besides Micah in the Minor Prophets. So we are closing out the series today, and uh, the final book that we're going to be going over is the book of Malachi. And Malachi is about one question, and that question is this. What happens when the fire for God dies out? That's what Malachi is all about. What happens when our passions for God begin to dwindle or to completely die out? Um, so last week, it might have been the most spiritually powerful week you've had since the quarantine. Uh, it is probably an unusual week for Holy Week, but um, we, we got to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and you might have felt a spiritual high at that time, a, a spiritual mountaintop. Um, and oftentimes after those spiritual highs, we can experience a bit of a low. We can experience the passion kind of dying out and, and feeling less close to God than even before those powerful spiritual events. Now, things might even be different for you. You, you might have been feeling distant from God, passionless towards God since the beginning of the quarantine. The week in, week out of being distant from friends and family, being isolated in, maybe has made you feel like you are totally away from the presence of God, that your passion for God has waned and that he's not as close to you as he used to be. You know, whether you were in the first place, in the second place, or in a totally different place, the book of Malachi has a message for you. So Malachi takes place at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's actually the last book in the Old Testament canon. After Malachi is written, the collection of the Old Testament books closes. And um, the, the next uh, written word of God that we get starts in the New Testament. Um, and what happens in the book of Malachi, Malachi takes place um, about 100 years after the exile. So, so Israel has come back from exile in Babylon, and they've been the, their homeland again for about a hundred years. And when they began that rebuilding of the nation about a hundred years before, um, they had these amazing leaders in Nehemiah and Ezra. And they were powerful religious leaders who helped them reestablish their nation and renew that connection between them and God. But Nehemiah and Ezra have long since passed. They're no longer there, and a powerful leader has not been um, in Israel for a long time now. And so Israel has been kind of going through the motions. They've been doing their religious activities, they've been doing the things that they need to, but 
Their passion for God has waned. Their love for God has decreased. And they may look outwardly religious, but their, in, their inner connection with God has gone away. And the book of Malachi um, takes place, and it's, it's put together as if God was having an argument with his people. Um, the people bring together, uh, and they, they say to God, this is why we are passionless. This is why we have lost our love for you. And God responds. And this cycle happens over and over and over again. That's the entire book of Malachi. So what we get in Malachi is an up-close personal picture of how God deals with his people when the fire has died out. And Malachi tells us three things. He tells us three things to do when the fire dies out. He says, see what you burn for. He says, see what God burns for. And then he says, see what God burns. Those are the three things. See what you burn for. See what God burns for. And see what God burns. So let's jump right in. So first, Malachi tells us to see what we burn for. Turn with me to chapter 1 of Malachi. We're going to be in verse 2. So the first words that God says to his people in the entire book of Malachi is this. Here's what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord. God points out to Israel how much he loves them. And if you look closely, he says, I have loved you. What he's doing is he's pointing back to all the ways that God has cared for his people. He's cared for them and choosing them specially um, from all the other peoples of the world. He says, you're going to be my special people. He freed them from slavery when they were stuck in Egypt under Pharaoh. He brought them and made them into a nation. He brought them out of exile. He gave them his law and showed them this is how the world was meant to operate, and this is how you can best flourish, best thrive, and best live with one another and live in close connection with me. He's given them tremendous joy in being in relationship with him. They, he's given them every single thing that they have. Every meal that they got was from him, ultimately. God tells his people, I have loved you. And this is how they respond. But you ask, how have you loved us? In light of all the ways that God has loved his people, his people respond with, how have you loved us? They have forgotten how God has shown him their, his love time and time again. They've forgotten how God has been burning for them, has been passionate for them, has, has lived to show them his goodness, his love, his kindness, and his favor. And what God shows them is that the reason that you are passionate, you are no longer passionate about me is because you have replaced me with other passions. And there are two things that you have replaced your passion for me with. You are no longer passionate about me, you are passionate about these two things. And so what are those two things? Well, let's, let's look at the first one. The first one shows up in chapter 1, verses 6 through 4. So let's read that. Micah, I'm sorry, Malachi, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? says the Lord Almighty. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, 
How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for your sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So what's happening here is uh, God is upset with his people because they are offering diseased, lame, bad offerings to him. So when God freed his people from slavery and, and gave them a relationship with him and, and made them a nation, he gave them a law. And, and the law was to show them how they were supposed to interact with God, how they, they knew that he would interact with the world and how they were supposed to interact with one another and him. And in the law, they um, have been given certain requirements. They're supposed to make sacrifices on a regular basis, sacrifices to do two things, to atone for their sins and to show gratitude to God for all that he has done for them. And there were certain regulations that came with these sacrifices. They had to be certain things. They had to, they had to um, be certain animals for certain situations. But the one regulation that all the sacrifices had to have in common was this. They had to be the top quality stuff. God wanted his people to give him the best from their flocks, the animals that were um, the good stock, the ones that if they reproduced, they would make the best animals in the flock and, um, and they would increase the wealth of the people because their, their herds were getting bigger and stronger and better. So God was saying, I want you to give me the best from your pantry, not the leftovers. I want you to give me the best stock not the stuff that you're not intending to keep. But that's exactly what the people were doing. They were giving God not the best from their stock. They were giving them, they were giving him the stuff that they were already intending to get rid of. The lame, the blemished, the diseased, the animals that they didn't intend to keep any longer. The ones that if they reproduced, they would create other bad animals and the flock would be weaker and their wealth would decrease because of it. 
they were already planning to get rid of these animals. And so in their minds, they thought, well, might as well kill two birds with one stone. I have this religious requirement that I have to do, and I'm going to get rid of these animals. Why don't I just get rid of the animals and fulfill this religious thing that I got to do, this ritual that I got to do um, to be right with God. So let's just do both at the same time and be done with it. So in order to save themselves money, in order to pursue wealth, they gave up their weakened animals to the sacrifices. What God says that they burn for is that they burn for their wealth. Instead of giving God the best from their flocks, the things that God asked them to, um, they were giving of the lame, the diseased, the poor, the animals that were deformed, the ones that they didn't intend to keep anyways. Not the best, but the worst. Do you know that what you give your money to is an indicator of what you're passionate about? That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What What you value in life most is oftentimes shown by what you spend the most money on. Where you funnel your money should indicate what you consider most valuable in this life. It should indicate what you burn for, what you are most passionate for. That's why God's so upset here is because if the Israelites are giving their weak, puny, lame offerings, they're showing that they don't value him as much. If they're giving puny offerings, they're showing that they have puny love for God and they have puny value for him. The Israelites were burning for wealth. They were willing to cut corners in their worship so that they could continue to build their empire, build their uh, wealth, build their bank account. What I want to ask you is, I want you to think about what were all of the non-essential purchases that you made in the last year? Do any of them show a particular pattern? Do any of them show you what you are most passionate about. Listen, the point of all of this isn't to say um, uh, it's wrong to pursue making a, a living for yourself. That's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is actually very clear that making a, a living for yourself, um, um, caring for the people by um, working hard and caring for your family by working hard and providing for them, those are all good things. But here's the point. Passion for God dies in the pursuit of wealth. When you're passionate about wealth building, you are not passionate about relationship with God building. What the people burn for was wealth. And the problem comes when you are willing to cut corners in your worship to give more to your wallet. But that's not the only thing that God says that Israelites were worshiping, that what they were burning for besides him. Look with me in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 10 through 16. Here's what God says. He says, Do not all have one father. Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, 
May the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And whatever does, and what does the one Lord, and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So the first thing that God pointed out to the Israelites that they burn for more than him is their wealth. The second thing that he points out that they burn for more than him is romance. You see, here's the situation. The men of Israel were starting to abandon their wives and their families and to chase after foreign women and their gods. Now, before I even go any further, I want to make clear that this wasn't a matter of trying to keep the bloodline clean. What this was... Uh, what this was, what the problem with all of this was is that the Israelites were abandoning the commitments that they had to their wives and to their families to chase after somebody um, who was worshiping not even the same God as them. Um, the, the classic biblical term for this is um, called lust. These men were lusting after these women. These men were lusting after their gods. Um, they were not having uh, a faithful, committed relationship to their spouse, and they were not having a faithful, committed relationship to their God, but they were chasing after other things. Marriage was designed not to be like that. Rather, marriage is supposed to be a picture of how God relates to his people. God is totally committed to his people. God is committed to them so much that no matter how much wrong they do, he is still focused in on loving them, caring for them. Throughout the Bible, we see this picture of a God who's willing to go to extremes to care for his people, to love them, to show them how amazing he is and how much he burns for them. He's committed to them even when they are not committed to him. The picture that we get in the Bible is that God is saying continually, I have loved you. And more often than not, his people respond, how have you loved us? And yet, God still loves them. And yet, God is still committed to them. Marriage is supposed to be, this ex marriage is supposed to be an example of this kind of selfless love. This passion for the other's well-being, even if that other person doesn't return the favor. How you relate to your spouse is a reflection of how you relate to God. So spouses enter into the marriage with a vow. They say this, I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, for in sickness and in health, till death to us part. That's a commitment. That's a vow. That's a promise. There's a um, oh, I'm putting myself on the line for you, and even if you don't return the favor, I'm going to be committed to you. It's meant to reflect 
God's willingness to do the same thing for his people, to put himself on the line in order to provide for them even if they don't return the favor. For these men to be willing to so quickly give up their wives and their families and chase after other women and other gods, have sh that shows that they had forgotten God's commitment to them long ago. I wonder if this situation is too different from what we experience nowadays. I don't think it is. How often is this story taking place? How often is this story told and do you hear this? A spouse, usually a wife, is left with the kids uh, after the relationship has been severed. Years of closeness, of intimacy, of, of um, joy, laughter, has slowly dwindled, dwindled away into apathy, to distance, to bitterness, until eventually one of the spouses ends the relationship. Lust is at the top of the list of reasons that people get out of a relationship. Lust is at the top of the list of things that people burn for besides God. I doubt that the Israelites woke up just one morning and decided to leave their family. Uh, it, it was probably much more of a slow dying of the relationship, a slow burnout of the relationship. Unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to your spouse rarely happens in a moment. It more often than not happens in a slow decline, in a slow dying of the fire. It's really sad that marriage is fairly often not treated as uh, the selfless commitment it was designed to be. Because more often than not, marriage is treated as a trade. I will give you selfless love and I will care for you um, if you return the favor. That's not a sacrificial mindset like we see with God. That's a transactional mindset. That's saying, I'm going to fulfill my end of the deal if you do the same. Um, it's, it's like this. Whenever, um, whenever a marriage ends, usually you can kind of trace it back to, um, well, I felt like the other person wasn't filling their end of the bargain. Um, I, I felt like things weren't working out. I just, I just didn't feel fulfilled in the marriage anymore. It was because they didn't do what they were supposed to in the marriage that I felt like, hey, I should, I think this is time to be over. In a transaction, as long as both parties are fulfilling their ends of the deal, things are good. But as soon as someone starts to think that the other person is getting a better deal than they are, deal's off the table. Things are ended. Time to cut off this relationship. We gotta remember that our relationship um, with our spouse always reflects back our relationship with God. If we have a transactional marriage, why don't we think that we have a transactional relationship with God? We should think that. We should look back to seeing, how am I actually looking at this relationship that I have with God as if it was a transaction? You, you can't say to your spouse, I'm only in this as long as you keep up your end of the deal and not say that to God as well. How often is this our mindset? Yeah, God, I know that you love me, but what have you done for me recently? Um, when God does something in our lives that is really good, it's easy for us to worship him. It's easy for us to feel happy and joyful and feel close to God. 
But when he does things in our lives that we find confusing, we find uncomfortable, we find that uh, maybe doesn't seem like a good plan, we question God. We question whether or not he's committed to our goodness. We question whether or not he's actually even there for us. We have this transactional mindset with God as well in that we're willing to worship him so long as he blesses us. If you're married, I want you to think about this. In verse 15, it says this. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Do you see what he says at the beginning of that? He says, you belong to him. The picture that we get in this passage is that marriage is not saying, is not God giving you someone, but it's God giving you to someone. Marriage is saying, I belong to God. I, I belong to him. He has so selflessly committed himself to me, and he is giving me to someone else to do the exact same thing. I am to be committed to this person like God has been committed to me. This even extends to outside of marriage. If you're single, God has still given you to other people to be selflessly committed to, like he's been committed to you. He's given you a community. He's given you a family. He's probably given you a church. Wherever you are in life, whatever phase of life you're in, whatever relationship status you have, you belong to God. And God has given you two people to be selfless towards them, like he has been selfless towards you. He's given you to be loving towards them, like he's been loving towards you. He's been given, he's given you to be committed to them, like he, like he has been committed to you. He's given you to burn for them and their good, like he burns for your good. So this is the two things that Israel burned for more than they burned for God. They burned for wealth more than God, and they burned for lust more than God. But I, what I want us to recognize is that the Bible is very clear that these aren't the only two things that people burn for more than God. We can point to a ton of different passages that point us to the fact that there are numerous things that people want to burn for more than God. It's The point of these passages is to show us not that you got to keep an eye out for wealth and lust, but you got to keep an eye out for anything that you will burn for more than God. Do you burn for your career more than God? Do you burn for your family more than God? Do you burn for your reputation more than God? Do you burn for your nation more than God? Whatever it is that you burn for more than God is the thing that's going to be killing your relationship with him. It's going to be killing your passion for him. It's the cause of why the fire is dying out. So what Malachi says to us is, see what you burn for. Is it God or is it something else? So Malachi shows us not only to see what we burn for, but he also tells us to see what God burns for. So let's keep reading past what we just finished in uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. Let's go into verse 17. This is God speaking. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, 
all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them? Or where is the God of justice? So we continue in this argument between God's people and him, and God opens up by saying, you exhaust me. You weary me. You make me so tired. And when the people ask how and why, um, he says this, you think that I don't care about purity and you think I don't care about justice. What you're saying to me is you call evil good, God. And you're also saying to me, God, you don't even care about justice. And the reason God is so upset is because these are two things, not only that God does care about, but they are the things that he cares about most in life. These are the two things that he burns for more than anything else. God burns for the purity of his people. Nothing bothers God more than when his people are impure. And what, what impurity means is just simply that there are things inside of something that shouldn't be in there. Take gold and silver, for example. If there are impurities in gold and silver, that means there are things in it that make it lose its shine, that make it lose its value. God's people are impure when they have passions and when they burn for things besides God. These are things that um, get inside of them and, and make them decrease in value, decrease in what they are meant to be. Like when a computer is full of viruses and full of bad programs, it slows down, it's less effective, it's less useful of what it was intended to do. And so when the people of God have uh, a bunch of passions that are greater and not towards God, they're full of impurities. They, they lose their shine. They lose their beauty. They lose what they were intended to be, connected to God and loving towards others. So he cares for purity, but he also cares for justice. These are the two things he loves more than anything else. God made his world in the beginning truly perfect. Everything was good. Everything was right. People lived in perfect harmony with one another. There was no evil in this world. But that didn't last long. What happened was evil entered into this world and evil entered into us. The fact that we are going through a pandemic right now is actually a sign that the evil in this world has broken things, that there are problems in this world because of how evil has entered into this world. God is intending to right all of these wrongs. God is about to bring justice. He's, he's about that. He is all for that. Justice is um, punishing that evil and giving mercy to the victims of evil. God's plan throughout all of the Bible that's continually laid out is that he is making his world new again. He's making it good again. He's righting all of the wrongs. He's bringing justice to spread throughout all of the earth. For the Israelites to say that God doesn't care about purity and doesn't care about justice, um, that is saying that God is totally different than what he truly is. That is totally off from who he is. Purity and justice are the things that God cares about more than anything else. And Malachi doesn't only give us a picture of what God burns for um, in purity and justice, but he also shows us a picture of how God is planning to accomplish both of those. So he's accomplishing both of those through fire. Now let's, let's look at um, chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what he says. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God is saying he's sending a messenger. There's going to be a messenger that's coming, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord's actually going to come himself. And, and we see this picture of God coming to his people, and he's going to do something with them. What is he going to do? Well, we take a look in verse 2. Here's what, he, here's what he's going to do. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So, What's with this refiner's fire? Because God says he's going to come like a refiner's fire. So when we talked about gold and silver just a minute ago, uh, we talked about how um, when they are full of impurities, they lose their shine they, and they lose their value. The way that people purify gold and silver is that they apply a flame to it. When a refiner wants to make a gold or silver more pure, he puts it under fire. And, and the, the metal melts, and all of the impurities actually melt out of the metal, and they float to the top, and the refiner skims off those impurities. And they do this over and over and over again until the silver or the gold is pure, until it's, it's, it's actually proper, it's more valuable, it's shinier, it reflects more of uh, the beauty inside of it. And God is saying to his people, this is what I'm intending to do. I'm coming to burn you pure. There is a fire that is coming, and I will bring this fire, this fire of purity, to make my people good, to make their offerings good. They will no longer offer diseased, lame animals. They will offer good sacrifices. They will no longer be passionate about things besides me, but they will be supremely passionate for me. God is bringing this fire of purity to his people to make them full of passion for him. But that's not the only fire that he intends to bring. You don't have to turn there, but in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire. Says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. In uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, it reads this. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. They do not fear me, is what he is saying. In this picture, we see God bringing another fire, the fire of justice that will burn like a furnace. All of the evil in this world that is not meant to be there, he is intending to eradicate. He is intending to burn clean of this world so that's what's left is nothing but goodness, nothing but what is right. And so God says he's going to bring the fire of justice, and God is going to bring the fire of purity. 
he's got these two fires that are coming. And what he gives his people is a choice. What he gives you and me is a choice. The fire of purity, the purifying fire, is going to burn people pure. The fire of justice will burn up evil entirely, perpetrator and all. You see, God hates evil. That's just essential to who he is. If he didn't hate evil, if he wasn't so against evil, he would not be truly good. For him to be creator and ruler of this entire universe means that anything that jeopardizes, anything that goes against his goodness, he must get rid of. And the problem that we come into is that there is evil inside of us. And so God says, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to burn out all the evil in you, or I'm going to burn you with the evil in you. And the choice about which fire we get is up to us. God says, if you want the fire of purity, I will give it to you. If you want, to be, if you want the evil out of you, I will burn it out of you. But if you are not willing to take that fire of purity, I am forced to burn you with it. You have a choice. You and I have a choice. God is saying to us, you will either be burned pure or you will be burned up. So Malachi tells his people, see what God burns for. He burns for purity and justice. And you and I have the choice of being burned pure or being consumed whole. Lastly, Malachi tells us to see what God burns. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Here's what it says. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So in verses 1 through 3, Malachi tells us about that day that's coming, where God will bring the purifying fire to make his people pure, and he will bring the fire of justice to eradicate all evil in this world. And the, the purified people will have their passions totally burning for God, and they will live in true joy, true peace, true harmony, true living, what it really means to live, they will experience it. But for our purposes, what I want us to point to is I want us to look at verses 5 and 6. 
So over a hundred years later, rather over 400 years later, during Jesus's ministry, um, the Israelites were waiting for the Messiah. This Messiah was God himself coming um, as this king to liberate them from Roman rule. Um, they were they had some signs that they were looking for to identify who this Messiah was going to be and when he was coming. And um, they actually pointed back to passages like Malachi as examples of signs to be looking for out, signs to be looking out for, for the Messiah. Um, and what they saw in Malachi 4 in verses 5 and 6 was that Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, would return or somebody like him would come and uh, appear before the Messiah. So do you remember what it says in Malachi chapter 3? God says, I am sending a messenger to prepare my way. That messenger is going to be the one that is um, announcing the coming of the Messiah. God himself come in the flesh to be king over his people and to liberate them and raise them up as this great nation. And the people figured out that that messenger must be Elijah. Elijah must come to announce the way of the Lord, uh, announce the way of this Messiah that's coming. He would do what it says in verses 5 and 6. Rather, he would do what he says in verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Elijah was known exactly to have done that because in the most influential moment of Elijah's life, the, the, the ministry moment that everyone looks back on and says, that's what Elijah was all about, he draws parents' hearts to their children, children's hearts to their parents, and all of Israel back to God. In 1 Kings 18, um, we see what this event is. Uh, Elijah um, is at the beginning of his ministry, and the northern tribe of Israel um, has just come under the rule of an evil king of a new evil king who is ruining everything in the land and who's calling everyone to worship um, not the Lord, but this new God called Baal. And the religious prophets of Baal have become more powerful in the land and they've, they've spread their religion throughout it all. And Elijah, who's uh, the Lord's man, who is all about the Lord and wants to show his greatness and his love, he's a man who truly burns for God, he presents a challenge to these prophets of Baal. He wants to show who's the true God, who's the one who truly is in charge. And so Elijah challenges these prophets. He says, let's make a competition. Let's both build altars and let's both present offerings on those altars. I, I, we won't burn them yet, but let's make two altars, one for the Lord and one for Baal. And let's put two unburnt offerings on top of them. And then we'll take turns. Um, you can go and you can ask your God to consume the offering um, without you putting any fire on it whatsoever, just for him to send down fire from heaven. And then I will um, do the exact same thing. I'll ask my God, the Lord, to burn up this offering. And the, prophet, and the prophets of Baal agree to it. They say, yeah, let's go for it. So the day comes, and, and the prophets of Baal are up first. They've got their altar, they've got the offering on their altar, and they, they spend hours crying out to Baal. They say, Baal, come burn this offering. And, and they keep doing it over and over again. So they, and they don't get anything happening. And so they say, louder, God, Baal, Baal, burn this offering. They, they start weeping and wailing at crying out to Baal to say, 
come burn this up, show us how powerful you are. They start to cut themselves because of their great wailing and their desire to see Baal do something. And yet nothing happens. So when Elijah's up, what he does is he says, I'm going to not simply show you that my God's better, but I'm going to show you my God's so much more better. So what he does is he says, let's dump all of this water on top of the offering. Let's, let's dump gallons and gallons and gallons until the, the offering, the altar, and everything around it is drenched. So that no one would think that just some random spark happened and the, the, the offering was consumed. And then Elijah calls out. He says, God, send down fire from heaven and consume this offering. And it does. Fire comes down, consumes the offering, consumes everything. And in that moment, Elijah succeeds. He draws the people's hearts together. And they see that the Lord is the true God and Baal is not. What we see in Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 that Elijah was supposed to do, that the messenger to announce the coming of the Lord was supposed to do to draw their hearts to one another and draw them up to God, Elijah did that in his ministry. And so it's only natural for us to think that the people in Jesus's day were looking for somebody like that. They were looking for somebody who would draw people's hearts together and draw them up to God by sending down fire from heaven. Now, the Bible is very clear. Um, the one who was the messenger, the one who did announce the way of the Messiah, Jesus, was John the Baptist. John the Baptist um, did exactly what verse 6 says. He drew people's hearts together. He, he drew them together and he drew them to God. Um, because what he did was he was a prophet in the wilderness. He preached this message of repentance and belief. Repent, turn from your sins and turn back to God and believe that he has forgiven you. And that succeeded in drawing Israel's relationships back together with one another and drawing them up to God like we see in Malachi 4.6. Jesus himself tells his disciples in Matthew 17, he says, John the Baptist is Elijah. But here's the problem that we run into. Elijah drew people's hearts together and drew it back up to God by calling down fire from heaven. John the Baptist did do that. He, he drew people's hearts together and drew it back up to God, but we never saw fire fall. Throughout all of John the Baptist's ministry, his, his only thing that he did was he baptized people and he preached that message. He succeeded in Malachi 4.6, but he wasn't like Elijah in that he called down fire. What, wait, how could Jesus say that he was Elijah come in the flesh to announce the coming of the Messiah if he didn't bring down fire from heaven. Where's the fire? Where is the fire that Elijah was supposed to bring? Well, it didn't come in the way that we expected it. It didn't come in the way that the people expected it because Elijah called down fire from heaven. It was literal, and uh, John the Baptist didn't call down that literal fire, but the fire did fall. And the fire of justice that fell was the fire of justice that fell on Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the fire of justice that God was dispensing, um, and he took it in place of those who deserved it, you and me. In all of creation, there was no one who burned for God like Jesus. God asked of Jesus everything. He said, Jesus, I want all of your life, and Jesus was willing to lay it all down. 
His supreme passion it was for God and his glory. He held nothing back. There was never a moment where Jesus did not give 100% and was not 100% passionate for the Lord. He was the Messiah, God in the flesh, come to purify his people, to make them most passionate about God more than anything else. And he did this by taking the fire of justice that we deserved. Do you see that the evil inside of you should be consumed and that God has every right to actually burn up everything in this world and just start over? But in order to save the people that he burns for, he himself took the fire of justice so that he could give us the purifying fire. Do you want to know how to burn for God? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus taking the fire of justice that should have come on you. And when you see that, you won't be able to stop from growing in passion for God. You won't be able to see um, Jesus on the cross and not cry out to him as if he was the, most thing, the thing that you were most passionate about. When you see the sacrifice that God made, you will see him as more valuable, more beautiful, more amazing than anything else in your life. There is nothing that you could chase after. There is nothing that you could be passionate for. There is nothing that you could value that comes close to how amazing Jesus is. So if you want to burn for passion, if you want to burn in passion for God, look at the cross. Look at Jesus taking the fire. Look what God burns. Jesus for you. So how does this all work? How does this play into our lives? One, one quick way that it plays out. Um, here, here's what Malachi has kind of taught us through all of this. He, he's, he said at the beginning, look at what you burn for. There are a ton of ways you can figure out what you burn for, but the life of the Christian is continually asking this question. What is it that I'm burning for more than God? Here, here's how you can practically apply this. Ask yourself over and over again this week, what is it that I'm burning for more than God? Is it, is it wealth? Do I, do I burn, for more than, uh, burn for wealth more than God? What am I spending my money on? What is that showing me about what I am most passionate about? What, what do I burn for? What am I passionate about? What do I love more than God? And then take that, whatever it is that you're most passionate about, and place it in your mind next to the cross. And just imagine, which of these is more valuable? Which of these deserves my passion more? Which of these will leave me more joyful and satisfied? See, the whole life of, of a Christian is, is finding out again and again what we are most passionate for and then letting the cross make us less passionate for that and more passionate for God. So friends, what I want you to see more than anything else is the cross. See Jesus consumed on the cross so that you could be burned pure. See Jesus consumed on the cross so that you can burn for him. When you see him there, you can't help but be passionate for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the fire of justice that we deserve fell on Christ. God, we are slow to be passionate for you. Um, many of us are probably experiencing uh, 
a low burn for you, a dying burn for you. We are feeling distant from you. We are feeling unloving towards you. And there are things that we burn for more than you right now. God, help us to see how you burn for us. Help us to see how great you are. Grow our passion for you as we gaze more and more at the cross and help us day in and day out to replace our passions for other things with more passion for you. In Jesus' name we pray.